0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, November the twentieth, 2020. This is episode 27. Seventy-eight of the Survival Podcast. It is a Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show of the week. And I've got a good lineup for you today. Here's who I've got. Uh, Jessica Dixie Mills will talk about hammock camping, specifically off the CDT or Continental Divide Trail, but hammock camping in general. How much carb restriction is actually needed to change your health? From Dr. Ken Berry. Managing composting with large amounts of grass clippings. From Jeff Lawton. Making $100 an hour by saying, yes, I do Windows, Tim the Toolman Cook. I, I put it that way because I remember like a big kind of meme before there were memes, right? When memes were just like things people said, like, where's the beef, you know, uh, for 80s kids. Uh, being, I don't do Windows. That was like a big thing back in the 70s and 80s. I don't do Windows. Well, apparently, if you do do Windows, you make 100 bucks an hour. Yeah, Tim's going to tell you about that. Getting that side hustle on. Chef Keith Snow on Cooking Wild Boar. And I have my end segment today kind of more of an observation and a reinforcement on preparing to deal with what's coming in our near future with massive flux that I've been talking about for years and the Great Reset. Um, I've noticed a very heavy shift in dialogue from what I'm calling the alternative investing space. I'm talking about people that have been mostly silver and gold and the dollar will collapse forever. Forever, they've been saying. Go all in on silver and gold while they ask you for their dollars. And I've, I've talked about how silver and gold are great investments. They're great hedges. They're definitely something everybody should have some vesting into. Um, but like it has to be so much more broad than that. I'm listening to these people. Um, YouTube and Odyssey both. Like The ones that are on Odyssey now, I'm listening to them there. The ones that are still on YouTube, I'm listening to them there. And I, I'm listening to them because I've noticed this shift. And the shift is... Hey, uh, I'm getting a farm. Hey, uh, I'm putting solar in. Hey, I bought a Tesla power wall. Hey, um, I'm moving to another country. Hey, uh, I am going to start stockpiling more food. Like, and all these people tacitly talked about solar and off grid and homesteading and gardening and storing food and uh, means of defense and all this stuff. They all talked about it, but it was like, it was over there. Like, Almost like this obligatory thing to pander to that segment of the audience that they had because they were like, buy silver and gold or, you know, uh, how to make a million dollars on Forex training before the dollar collapses or, or whatever. Like, all these people in that space. And kind of the, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but somewhat the fear merchant space, fear merchant of collapsing economy. And to me, I think. What I can say about those people is they have done a good job of following economic indicators. They have done a good job of paying attention to like what the World Bank is doing and gold supplies and silver reserves and uh, resource reserves and stuff like that and so all of a sudden, what they were saying mostly because it was their niche they've be- they 've become full believers in their own prophecy because you don 't really believe your prophecy of gloom and doom, when when your advice and you come up with an hour-a-week show that all, really, all it really says is buy silver and gold. And here's all the reasons the money's going to collapse. Because you know damn well that that alone will not fix the problem. That that's only a tiny piece. When these people switch, I think what it means is because they have been plugged into one outlet for so long, they are in a perfect place to kind of be the guys to actually sound the alarm and be right for a change. And I'm going to talk about what that means and more on the idea of understanding what it's going to take to thrive over the next 10 to 20 years. Not to survive. Most people are going to survive to thrive. Because a lot of people are going to be freaking miserable and have their lives destroyed. I mean, that's if you look at Australia right now, we're, we're keeping COVID under control. Yeah, but you're ruining everybody's life. You're ruining everybody's business. You're literally destroying yourselves while you hide from a bad case of the cold, that, yes, does kill some people. But is it worth destroying your country, destroying your people over? And I think if you're the people at the very top that want a complete new and total way that the world works, and you want to make sure that you don't have to give up anything, but everybody else does so you can keep everything and get more, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And they've done a great job of convincing the the uh, the like the middle mafia members, the middle mob bosses, that they're doing this for the right reason. Because most of these people that are in control in politics, that are doing all this stuff, that are restricting you, locking you down, telling you how many people you can have in your house with Thanksgiving and shit like that, I, I, I think one of the problems that we have, we call them idiots all the time, but we don't really believe it when we say it. We don't believe them when we say it. They're not that smart, folks. They're not orchestrating a grand conspiracy. They're doing what they're told, and they believe what they're doing is the best thing for their side. It's not about global domination for a Gretchen Whitmer. She's not important enough to be part of global domination. It's about her side. It's about a quest for power. It's, I'll tell you, and it's why you see more of it from the left. The left is more in touch with what it takes to win than the right. That's why the right is always losing. The right has lost every initiative long-term over the last 100 years to the left. Because the left understands instead of getting power so you can do something, the key is to get power. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm saying they understand it. In In the game of power, you win by taking as much power as possible. And then you can do all the wonderful things you think are wonderful that you want. But the key is the power. They understand this. They understand this. But the people at the top, the real puppet masters... They're pulling the strings on both the right and the left to march that forward across your neck. And you're going to need to be in a totally different mindset in the next 10 years rather than what you were in the last. And I'm going to use my anchor segment today to try to drive that home to you. So before we dig into all that, let's go ahead and start off with a quote of the day. And I I, I was just kind of browsing Quote Fancy today for just something that was maybe a little bit inspiring, but succinct and brief. And I found one by, of all people, Mae West. And I thought, man, this kind of sums everything up that I'm trying to drive home to people right now about dealing with all this change and being adaptive and resilient and non-brittle and, and, and fighting this battle in a way that gives you actually the opportunity not to win, but to thrive. Like there's no winning or there's no winning in this, right? There's losing or thriving. And what she said about life was you only live once but if you do it right once is enough that i mean we i guess there's different spiritual beliefs and some believe that we come back or whatever and i i've always thought that the way that you you kind of ignore that even if you believe it is you only get to live this life once like even if you do come back right if there's if reincarnation is a thing and you've been here before you don't remember any of that shit This life you have right now, regardless of your spiritual beliefs, whether you think you're going to heaven, you think you're worm dirt at the end of it, you think you get recycled into a mushroom on planet Melnack, whatever you believe, no matter what, you get one shot at this life. And every day, every day that you live, you've burned 24 hours of your life force. There's, this is, I picked it today because this is a lot like dealing with the reality of the great reset. This is a monumentous thing coming at you like a freight train. You are not going to stop it. We are going to have to deal with this flux because much of it has nothing to do with the Askelons in charge. It has to do with the evolution of humanity and a realization of there's only so many resources on this planet for 9 billion freaking people. You, you don't get to stop that. The flux of of change, the the advent, uh, the advancements in technology, like all that shit happens, whether there's good people or bad people in charge. You don't get to stop that. That's just the way life is, and every generation, or so, has dealt with some massive flux. This might be the biggest one in a hundred generations, but everybody deals with it, just like everybody deals with this reality. Tick, frickin' talk the clock ticks for you, it ticks for me, it ticks for us all, tick-freaking-talk. You get one life. You get to live this life once. Poof, each day.
2: Poof, poof,
1: poof, another full day gone. Think about being given a terminal diagnosis and knowing you're in the last week of your life. And say it's some... Thing that's gonna take you, but it's not gonna put you completely and totally in misery and pain, like you're just gonna slowly go to sleep. When you wake up today, you know, at the end of this day, one seventh of what you have left is gone. How valuable is it? How valuable is it now? Can you get in touch with it before you have to face that? We all die. We're all mortal. When you're twenty you can afford for a while, I guess, to think you're gonna live forever. Most kids do it some some weird way. The older you get, the more you get in touch with your mortality. So think about it this way somewhere in the corner oh, some corner of your house is a giant jar. In that giant jar are glowing blue marbles. They glow this iridescent, beautiful blue. And every day when you wake up, you have to go pick one up. Put it in your pocket. And it glows bright blue all day, and it fades as you go to sleep. When you wake up, there's just enough blue in there left so that you can go get your next marble. And the next day, your next marble. And here's the thing about it. You can never put more marbles in that giant jar than it starts out. And you have to take one out every day. Every day, you take one out. Take one out today. Take one out tomorrow. Take one out for the next week. If you're going to live a long life, doesn't even look like anything happened. But over time, over time, that level begins to drop. And one day you look, one day you look at your jar and you realize it's more than half empty. The horror of that would be knowing exactly when the good would be not wasting one of those marbles. The good would be not wasting a single one. Not saying ah to hell with it. It doesn't matter. There'll always be a tomorrow because you don't know if your jar's really big or really small. This is part of why I'm not afraid of COVID. I believe on some level my destiny is to live in a specific number of years, get as much shit done as I can, and eventually I'm gonna go out and disappear and I'll be a dash on a rock somewhere. And I'm okay with that. I'm not going to do stupid things. I'm not going to go around licking toilet seats or jumping out of airplanes without parachutes on. But I've only got one life to live. And I'm going to do it right. So this once is enough. Great way to lead off today. Let's start off now by talking about something that can reset us so that we can make the most out of that life, which is camping, getting out into the wilderness. I think we are more in our natural state standing in the shade of a tree than the shade of a building. And when you do that, you might have to sleep out there, and you might want a way to do that without, like, having crap crawl over you or what have you. And hammock camping is a really great way. You know, the nice thing about hammock camping, assuming there's something to hang a hammock from, you don't ever have a rock sticking in the back. Someone that knows a little bit about that, Jessica Dixie Mills. Here's some thoughts on hammock camping from the Continental Divide Trail.
2: Hey, y'all. Jessica Dixie Mills. From Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land here today to answer a question for Jaren. Jaren asks, how feasible would it be to use a hammock slash tarp instead of a tent on the CDT? And for those of y'all who are not familiar with that term, that is the acronym for Continental Divide Trail, which spans from Mexico to Canada through New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, a little bit of Idaho, and Montana. So Jaron elaborates saying, I'd like to use a hammock instead of a tent when I hike the CDT next year, Sobo, which in the world of backpacking means southbound. It's more comfortable and I have enough experience using my hammock that I prefer it to a tent. At this point, sleeping in my hammock feels like I'm home. My concern is whether there will be enough trees in order to hang the hammock and how often I'd have to go to the ground with it. Did you meet through hikers carrying hammocks on your through hike of the CDT? I think if I carry a Tyvek sheet and either some trekking poles or some lightweight support poles, I'd be able to pitch the tarp without the trees and loosely hang the hammock. This would allow me to use the hammock as a bug net while sleeping on the ground. I plan on testing this setup this winter, but I didn't know how often I'd have to use it while hiking the trail. Are there long sections of the trail without access to trees? I don't expect it to be very comfortable, but I'd consider it if I rarely have to sleep on the ground. I love your videos, especially because many of your through-hike videos are more about the people and your personal experience rather than just showing off the trail itself. Well, Jaren, thanks so much for shooting Jack a question for me. I appreciate that. And to be honest, I i mean, I didn't meet many people on the CDT, right? <laughs> so uh, the, the Continental Divide Trail is a pretty desolate trail. And going southbound, uh, it probably will be especially for you since most people do travel northbound uh so no i did not meet that i recall anybody on my through hike that was hammocking but i do know a fella in a different year who who hammocked uh going actually southbound on the continental divide trail and i and i do recall that he did have to go to the ground occasionally under his tarp kind of like you're talking about that that you're planning as a plan b um so Really, there are far less trees on the Continental Divide Trail than the Pacific Crest Trail, and especially the Appalachian Trail. Um, but all states are going to be, you know, patchy as far as trees. They'll come and go. But New Mexico is going to be pretty bare as far as trees go. Because, you know, if you're familiar with the Pacific Crest Trail, then, you know, when folks say the desert out there, the first 700 miles or so, it's not too extreme desert. You still find trees and places you could hang. Uh, but in New Mexico, it's like barren, just wide open, flat, sandy, treeless desert. You're going to be drinking out of cattle troughs for your water sources kind of desert. Um, but going north down to the south, uh, the wind river range might be a little patchier. just at that point, you're above tree line for a lot of it. And then the basin in Wyoming is, is pretty treeless. It's, um, also very desertous, but I'm not saying that you couldn't find some sort of scrubby stuff that you might make work here and there. Uh, and then in Colorado, it's going to be on and off. And then after ghost ranch. So after Northern New Mexico, again, it's going to be pretty bare. So it really just depends on, you know, whether you're willing to deal with that or not. Now the fella that I know that did it, he had a closed cell phone pad. Um, so he would, you know, sleep on that in either cowboy camp or set up his tarp and, and he didn't mind the closed cell phone pad on the ground. So, you know, it's going to be a personal preference thing. Uh, but I did do a little digging around and I found on a forum that, Another guy who did exactly what you want to do, did a southbound through hike of the Continental Divide Trail. He said that pretty much until he hit New Mexico, he had luck finding trees. And he actually uh, has waypoints that he documented through, I don't know if it was an InReach or a spot device. Um, but he shows red flags for every place that he could camp using his hammock to hang. And then it looks like yellow flags for anywhere he camped that he had to sleep on the ground, and I'm guessing the green flags that he uses for his waypoints mean that he slept in town. But I'm going to include the link to that forum conversation and then the link to those waypoints so you can kind of eyeball it yourself and get an idea of what somebody else did. Um, so maybe you could do your hammock setup and then once you hit New Mexico, you could always transition to something else that's a bit more comfortable, maybe a more comfortable sleeping pad, or maybe bugs won't really be a whole, you know, big issue for you at that point. So anyway, I hope that that was helpful somewhat, and I hope that at least the links helped you know, make that decision for you. Uh, So, again, I'll shoot those over to Jack to include in the show notes. But thank you again for the question and for the kind words and the comments there at the end. I, I really appreciate that. And for anybody who hasn't yet checked out my trail series videos, then be sure to head over to Homemade Wanderlust if you want to see what it's like to live in the woods for a six-month stretch or so. Or if you just want more information about backpacking or camping in general, I do everything from the very beginner stuff all the way up to a through hike of a trail like the Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, and Continental Divide Trail. So thanks, y'all. See you next time.
1: All right. Next up, uh, Dr. Ken Berry on carb reduction. And maybe not going all the way to keto, but... You know, does your life get better if you simply eat less carbs uh, than, rather than more carbs?
3: Hello, Jack Spierko and the TSP crew. This is Doctor Kenbury, family physician, answering a question for a listener. This time it's from John in Georgia. John's wanting to know if just slightly reducing your carbohydrate intake will have improvements in your health and your your vitality and optimization. John's 34 years old and pretty healthy as far as he can tell. He's not looking for a lot of weight loss, although he wouldn't mind losing five or 10 pounds. He's pretty much eliminated uh, sugary drinks, sweets, fruit, and bread, and stuff like that, but he can't really get below 70 total grams of carbohydrate on a regular basis uh, because he, he still enjoys eating lots of veg, vegetables, and maybe some fruits and berries with his meat. Uh, should he keep doing this lower carb diet? Is there any benefit to that? Uh, or should he just uh, man up and get his carbs down to 20 grams total or less a day? It's an excellent question. John, it looks like from the research and from my experience with thousands of people doing a low carb or a ketogenic diet, that any reduction in your total carbohydrate intake per day is going to give you health benefits. And I think the reason this is is because human beings are by design, low carbohydrate mammals. If you feed us too many carbohydrates, we get fat, we get sick, we get fatty liver, we get type two diabetes, we get chronic inflammation. And so definitely get rid of all the added sugar, junky crap, no doubt about that. Definitely get rid of all the grains, all the grains, even ancient grains are too high in carbohydrate. They're just basically starch, which is long lines of sugar holding hands. And then get rid of all the vegetable oils out of your diet, the canola, the corn, the soybean, the peanut, safflower, sunflower, none of these oils are healthy for you. Use animal fat or avocado oil, olive oil, or uh, coconut oil. And so I absolutely think that you are extending your lifespan and your health span by eating 70 total grams of carbs a day. Uh, Are you going to get the maximum effect of a ketogenic diet by eating 70 carbs a day? No, you're not, but you are getting benefit. It is worth the effort. Uh, If you find that your weight loss stalls and you just can't get rid of the five or 10 pounds, Think of your daily total carbohydrate intake as a volume knob. So you got the volume set on 70 right now. If you're, if, you're, if you're losing that weight and you're feeling great, keep the knob right there. But if you if you stall and you're not making the progress you want, then turn your carbohydrate volume knob down to 50 grams a day. And do that for two or three months. And if you get your results and benefits, hot down. Keep it right there. If you don't, then turn the knob down to 30 or even 20. And so you, everybody can think of your carbohydrate intake. And when I say carbohydrate, I'm talking about healthy, real, whole food, one ingredient carbohydrates like broccoli and blueberries. If you can get all the benefits you want and and have 70 grams of carbs a day, congratulations, carry on. But if you're not getting the benefits you're looking for, then just turn down your carbohydrate intake knob until you start seeing results, and then just keep it right there. Hope this answer helped. This is Dr. Berry. I'll talk to you guys next time.
1: I I do want to say something here. Ken and I have a a difference of opinion on net versus uh, total carbs. And we've debated this, and Ken's a very smart man, but he's never been able to counter this argument of mine. Biochemically, your upper GI from your stomach and your small intestine is incapable incapable of digesting uh, fiber it can't do it it's not possible you can't i mean i 'm just going to say one more it biochemically is not available to your body you cannot cannot infinity digest fiber in your stomach and in your small intestine. In your lower bowel, some of it can be extracted, and it will be extracted in a form of carbohydrate-ish type weird macro thing that I can't get into today that can have some impact on blood glucose levels, but it's nowhere near the level of any sort of carbohydrate, including complex carbohydrates. I agree with that. Simple and complex. It's all sugar. Fiber, when it goes in stomach acid, doesn't get digested. When it goes in a small intestine, it doesn't get digested. It takes about 14 to 18 hours before any of the calories in fiber can be extracted by your body. This is why they think it's good for colon health. Whether it is or isn't is is irrelevant. But this is why they think it's good, because it gets to the colon. Because it gets there, that's why. So there are some pseudo-carbohydrate, net-carbohydrate things where I think people maybe are lying in the food industry. But when we're talking about Broccoli, the fiber in broccoli is not a carbohydrate digestively. The reason I even bother with this debate for this segment, if you're really getting those carbohydrates from vegetables, and you don't mean potatoes, okay? You don't mean potatoes and you don't mean carrots into maybe a lot of tomatoes, right? If you mean from vegetables, actual vegetables, not fruits, 70 is probably not that high. It's actually, and you're, you're kind of in the paleo world. And for some people, if your labs are good, you're good. That's how I feel about it. Like, I'm not a purist, only the Sith deal in absolutes. I think the optimum diet that anybody can use that will probably work the best for the most people is a straight keto diet. I, I, I agree with that. Ken and I do not disagree about that. I do think that the, the crux of the question is basically I read it this way. Am I better off in the 50 to 70 carbohydrate range living a paleo lifestyle or on the standard American diet of around 300 carbohydrates a day? (laughs) That's an easy one. You're better off with the kind of paleo level diet because that's what you're on. Now, you've got to be careful with this. People say it's 70 and then you look at it and they're eating all kinds of apples and bananas and shit and they're really at like 150, 170 carbs. That's not what I'm talking about here. And that's the thing, like... Where are these carbs coming from? Are they coming from fiber and Brussels sprouts and cauliflower and broccoli? Then I don't have you know I don't have a problem with it. If a little bit of tomato here and a little bit of cucumber there, a little bit of carrot here, a little bit here, and there, no problem. If they're coming from apples and pears and bananas, I bet you your seventies are your low days because the amount of carbohydrate in a banana alone is insane. A banana has about twenty-eight carbohydrates in it. Great, you just had half a Coca-Cola. All right, so there's, there's where my line on this is. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about composting with large amounts of
4: materials with Jeff Lawton. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia with a question from the Survival Podcast on details in relation to composting. So uh, a gentleman here has asked a question. Um, he cuts about three and a half acres of grass weekly. Uh, Plus, he has 300 feet of tree line dumping uh, a ton of leaves everywhere come fall. He's over six cubic yards of green and brown grass mixed with dead leaves piled up out back uh, lying on the ground. He's mixed uh, three pounds of dry molasses and two pounds of earthworms gathered from his lawn so those are earthworms if they're on the lawn they're not compost worms they live in the soil not in the compost i plan on adding more worms he says and i live in the central thumb area of michigan to tarp or not to tarp i presume this is over winter and i would tarp because otherwise it's all going to reduce in volume really Um, This is kind of a big, slow mulch pile, not so much compost. If we're making compost, normally we have one-third green material uh, and um, food waste, uh, one-third brown material, like your dry leaves, and one-third manure, and uh, we activate the compost by turning um, the less we turn, the longer the time, the, f- the, the more we turn, the faster the time. So we can make the compost in 10 or 12 days if we turn it every day, and we can make it in six months if we turn it once after construction and getting it to the right moisture and covering it with a tarp. My suggestion here is add some manure, try and get a, a, a third of the, the pile in manure, get it nice and damp, tarp it up and open it up after winter, and you should have a reasonable compost there. Um, but you won't have done much work. It'll be a long-term compost with very few turns, um, and quite good value for money. Um, if you want it fast, um, and you want to make a high-quality aerobic compost that got lots and lots of organisms that are beneficial for the soil, um, just tarp it, and in the springtime, add a third manure to at least um, one or two cubic yards of material don't make it too small can't be less than one and a half cubic yards uh, you don't want it more than five feet uh, sorry you don't want it more than uh, five feet high uh, because if it starts getting six eight feet high the weight of it will make it anaerobic on the bottom um, and then then turn it let's say turn it on a Monday Wednesday friday take the weekend off do that again monday wednesday friday take the weekend off turn it monday wednesday friday and put it on the garden the next monday in other words turn it nine times over three weeks but take your weekends off um and you should be fine uh, you'll come up with a pretty good aerobic compost full of life but it is all about bringing that manure in as one third horse or cow manure is usually the easiest to get um if it's chicken manure Um, then make sure it's aged. If you're going to put a third, if it's fresh, just put a quarter volume in fresh chicken manure. And you should be all go. All right. Good one.
1: My only addition here is that like what just Jeff gave you is like optimal. You want to make a lot of compost, really, really aerobic, really, really rich, and as perfect as you possibly can under the circumstances you described, do all that. If you have chickens, and you just keep piling shit up, and you let chickens go through it, and when it gets to a certain point, you look at it and go, okay, that pile's kind of gone enough, and then you kind of pile it back up, you throw a tarp, you wet it down and throw a tarp over it, and just leave it there for a few months, you get great compost. Is it as good? No, it's not. Turning it and all this, adding manure, etc., yeah, makes better compost. Is it enough better to do it? Jeff's way. If you have the time and resources and wherewithal, yes. If you're growing commercial crops where you're really trying to increase yields, yes. In truth, though, if I have that much grass clippings and that much leaves, a lot of what I'm going to do is just put those two things together. See, the problem with composting grass clippings, if you don't mix it with a carbon, it kind of mats together in this pasty, glee-like, gross Stink, stank. And eventually it becomes hydrophobic where, you know, you have this big pile of grass and it's all moist inside, but it's only as moist as the grass made it. And it kind of dries out on the outside and it rains and it rains and it rains and it rains. And it rains. You think, boy, this must be really wet. And you pull it open and it's bone dry in the middle or it's as damp as it was before it rained. It, nothing gets inside it. And it doesn't break down. You need that carbon-nitrogen mix. Um, now, on the leaves, you probably have more leaves than grass to mix it with, honestly. If you have a mower, it sounds like you do, and you just rake up leaves and mow them, and just straight mulch with them, just let nature do the composting where the leaves go. The reason you want to mow them, especially if you have a bag mower, and it sounds like you do, is that when you put them in place, they will break down a lot better that way. Leaves a lot kind of a different way now. You've got all carbon, and they kind of overlap each other like shingles and they will actually kind of stick together to get some leaf mold, and that's a good thing, but it'll take a long time for them to break down and a long time for the soil organisms to do their work. And they then, because they're kind of matted together, you get into that anaerobic state Jeff was uh, warning you about. So fluffy, chopped up leaf mulch is gold, it's lightweight, and it's easy, and you just put it on the ground. And I'm not saying not to do the other composting at all. I'm just saying if you have that many leaves, man, that's that's gold, and it's easy. It's it's stupid easy. You you kind of push them all in a pile, run them over with the bag mower, and dump them wherever you want them to go. And you almost can't do too much of that. And that, and then a wood mulch on top of that. Uh, now you're cooking with gas. Let's go on to another one here. How about making hundred bucks an hour cleaning
5: windows and a gadget that actually makes the window look clean
1: when you're done? Tim the Toolman
5: Cook will tell you all about that. Hey guys, Tim the Toolman Cook back here from allseasonsmain.com where we define what it means to be a successful entrepreneur as a modern handyman where we share tips and tricks, successes and failures on the road to financial freedom. So I'm back with another segment for the Expert Council, and this week's segment was inspired by Dan over on MeWe. He's another incredible member of our TSP community who listened to my segment on there being money and garbage hauling and went out and started hustling. That's how it's done. He literally started making money on the first job. So of course, like all entrepreneurs, success gets addictive and he's looking for more low cost services that he can offer to make money on evenings and weekends. And of course, there's literally no end of the services that you can offer, but the absolute first one that comes to mind that's been working incredible for me is window washing. This has honestly become my single favorite service I offer. I was asked on a whim three years ago if I'd clean a customer's windows, something I hadn't done in years, but I watched a bunch of videos and used an old gas station style squeegee, and it did a serviceable enough job. I didn't do any more that year, but the next year I did maybe three customers to the point this year where I've done 30 to 40 jobs and I'm making around $100 an hour cleaning windows. So all you need to get started is a squeegee and a scrubber. You can get those for 17 bucks on Amazon. I sent a link to Jack for a brand that I started out with. Then you need an empty pail, some old rags, and some Dawn dish detergent, and a small step ladder or stool depending on the jobs you take on. If you're looking for advice on how to wash windows, I got a video, but there's a ton out there who are way better at it than I am. Take some time and practice on your own windows. Do your windows over and over and over again until you're comfortable. I offered a streak-free guarantee so that if the customer saw any streaks, I will come back and make it right. First couple of customers, I had to go back and fix a couple of streaks, and you know what? I got a lot better at seeing streaks after that. Most times, though, to be honest, people are so used to living with dirty windows that anything you do will be so much better than they're used to. You'll be your own worst critic, and even when the outside looks good, the inside is still streaked despite the homeowner's best efforts. So I end up charging $5 a window for ground floor windows and $12 a window for second-story windows. And I can easily do 20 ground floor windows an hour. So if you're not comfortable climbing up ladders or onto roofs, you can just focus on single-story homes or even the more lucrative storefront contracts. A couple other items you might want to pick up uh, down the road that'll really help is a razor blade scraper for scraping off stubborn dirt and bird poo. <laughs> and my not-so-secret st- weapon is quadruple zero steel wool. If it's my first time doing a person's windows or they haven't been done in a long time, I'll scrub them down with the scrubber and then I'll give them a good scrubbing and buffing with the uh, quadruple zero steel wool. Make sure it's quadruple zero and not extra coarse or something like that. And it works really good. A lot of your customers will be once or twice a year, especially if you're doing mostly residential. However, the best option that i found is to build recurring income. So offer a flat rate to customers who are willing to get you to come on a monthly basis once you know how many windows they have and how long it will take. And what's an even better option that's worked good is to work with businesses. If you have a downtown area or a commercial shopping type district, do up a flyer or a business card and stop into every business on a certain street or block. Offer them a flat monthly rate to come and do their windows on a weekly basis. If you're really trying to get your foot in the door, you can use uh, John Pugliano's idea about a first-time-it's-free method of literally getting your foot in the door, where you might spend an afternoon cleaning a bunch of businesses' windows, then give them your business card and have a chat with each one as you finish up. But as I've found with most services I offer, the money is really in the scale. So if you pick up 15 to 20 businesses, it honestly doesn't take that much more time to do them than it does to do a couple because you still got to load up, get everything there, and start cleaning windows. There's no reason you can't make five to $600 in a single day or a couple of evenings of, we- of work a week if you take on that much scale. A couple of quick tips as well. Don't clean the windows in direct sunlight. The water will evaporate way too fast and leave streaks. Practice, practice, practice. I've spent a ton of time practicing, and I still do on occasions. I still haven't got the uh, butterfly method down, so I just do the straight pull method, so whatever you're into. If you want to offer year-round window cleaning, and it doesn't get too far below freezing in your area, then add a bit of winter windshield washer to your water and soap mixture, and you'll be good to go. And one final upsell idea that I haven't gotten into yet, and that's possibly offering interior window cleaning as well. You can do it with the same gear you have. You just need to have a bit more care when it comes to uh, drips and that sort of thing. Use the exact same gear you have. Just lay down more rags and keep your stuff wrung out really good. So anyway, guys, I love hearing from everybody who's been getting out there and hustling and making money as a handyman or offering some sort of service. If you're looking for a single service that has a low point of entry level in the way of skill and upfront investment, then honestly, it doesn't get much better than washing windows. I just put in my headphones, relax, clean windows, and make money. If you guys want to know more about what I do, go buy my YouTube channel at allseasonsmain.com. Every Monday, I have a money-making minute video where I share something I've learned that has made me more money, or I spotlight a service or business I have seen recently that is doing it right and how we can adopt their principles to make us more money as well. So keep sending in the questions for Jack for anything that I can answer. And if you've started any type of service-based business, I would love to hear about it. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week.
1: And I do have the links that Tim mentioned in the show notes for you today. And I think I'm going to pick up one of these window washer things. My wife is very, very, she's very angry with our brand new big beautiful windows we put in the front of the house. They're so like giant pane, you know, single one pane, huge windows, and they look gorgeous. But when they get dirty and the sun comes in them, it's just like streaks everywhere. So I'm going to maybe talk to her about maybe getting this thing and giving it a shot because uh, I don't want to pay somebody a hundred bucks an hour to clean my windows, but. There's people that will, and maybe you could be the person doing that, and it's not a bad living. Not a bad living at all. Next up, how about cooking wild boar? I sent this one over to Shep Keith Snow, and I like the way he approaches it. He comes from the same way that I do about the whole wild boar thing. It's a pig. It's a pig. It's a pig. But it's a wild boar. It's a pig. It's lean. No, it's not. It's a pig. Unless you shot a very, very young or starving wild boar, There's plenty of fat on all pigs. Maybe not as much as a corn-fed hog. There's plenty of fat, lots to work with, tastes delicious. Chef Keith, take it away.
6: Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to answer Gary's question about cooking some wild boar. Now, I know these wild boar can definitely be uh, invasive, and they can destroy a lot of land, so I think it's good that you're clearing out some of them, Gary. But pork is pork. Um, you know, the general rules will apply with uh, wild boar as they do with um, commercial pork or heirloom pork, which is some of my favorite stuff. So today, um, what I'm going to tell you is that you can make amazing dishes with that boar. As far as the issue you mentioned about worms, um, I don't know. I've never um, shot and harvested a wild boar, so that's something you'd have to look into on your own. But today I'm going to share with you a simple recipe for cooking with um, pork, and it would definitely be my... um, you know, preference to go and find somebody who's raising some pastured pork or some pork, uh, some pigs that are actually out in the woods, which is really delicious. I love the heirloom breeds. Uh, this particular recipe I'm going to talk to you about was made with some Berkshire hogs, and uh, I'm going to ask Jack to embed a video link. There's a, a nice video showing you exactly how to make this dish, and it is um, it's a little different, but you're I think going to really like it. So. Here you go. What I like to do is take um, the butt or the shoulder of the pork and we'll just cut that up into smaller chunks. Now, um, it's going to cook faster that way and it'll be better on the fork. And I would say you're looking for, you know, any anywhere from an inch to two inches. It will shrink up a bit during cooking. So what you're going to do is take a nice Dutch oven that has a tight-fitting lid because later you're going to be braising this meat and you don't want to worry about a lot of evaporation and the pan or pot going dry on you. So um, because we're using pork, why not use um, lard as our um, fat in the bottom? So put the pan on about medium-high and you're going to toss um, a big knob of lard in there and let that start melting. In the meantime, you're going to take your pork butt, which you've cubed up, and toss it with a bit of flour. If you're worried about the gluten, you could use arrowroot. What we're trying to do is um, create the, uh, the the sauce thickening agent right in the pan as we start here. And for those of you watching carbs, a couple of tablespoons of flour in an entire dish like this is hardly going to be anything. Um, later on, so I wouldn't be too concerned with it. And you don't need a lot of flour. I'm saying about two tablespoons for a bunch of pork. Um, When I made this dish, it was nearly I don't know, three pound pork butt. So just toss the Pork butt in the flour, and then when the lard is melted, throw it in there and you're just going to sear this pork and you know let it cook for five or six minutes and then stir it, give it another five or six minutes. Do that about three times. What you're gonna do is put a little color on the pork. You're also going to cook the cakiness out of the flour. So once that's done, take once that's done, take a slotted spoon and remove the pork and just set that aside. Then you're gonna toss in a little more lard, maybe half as much as you did the last time, and you're going to take um, one large minced onion and throw that into the pot and just stir that around, a little salt and pepper at this point. And uh, you probably want to season the pork as well when you're searing it, so a little bit of salt and pepper to taste. And now you want to just get a little... Um, cook on these onions. They don't need to be, you know, super brown. And the bottom of your pot is going to have a lot of stuck-on fond or the flour that was on the pork. So you're going to start seeing some of that stuff stuck on there. Don't panic with that. The onions will will release a little bit of moisture and help with that. But just cook them about a minute or so, and then you're going to deglaze it with your hard cider. And this is a uh, a great thing, and I use usually Samuel Adams hard apple cider. So you'll toss in about half of that, and it should immediately come up to the boil. Now, you want to take a wooden spoon or maybe a, you know, scraper of some type, and you want to deglaze the bottom of that pan. Now, don't miss the opportunity to scrub all the corners and get it as clean as you can and bring that fond up into the liquid because that's really going to help later on. If you don't do that and you leave it in the bottom of the pan – you know, a good bit of the flavor will stay there. So once you've done that and you've deglazed it, then you're going to take your pork and toss it back in. You're going to also add your apples. Now, there'll be a recipe as well. Um, hopefully Jack will embed that. And you don't have to click over to my page. I'm, I'm just hoping Jack puts it right on TSP. Um but I like to use Granny Smith apples. And in the video I peeled the apples, you certainly could leave the skin on. You definitely want to core it, though, and take out the seeds and the stem. And about, you know, half to three-quarter inch chunks of apples. So you toss the, the apples into this dish. Um You put a little bit of minced sage. Again, I would um, re-season this with a little bit of salt and pepper. Put the heat on very low and lid this thing up and cook it for 90 minutes. Every, you know, 30 minutes you can open it up and give it a stir, but let it go for 90 minutes. And then after 90 minutes, you're going to open it up, add the cream and a little bit more sage. Give it a stir and then let it go about another 20 minutes. And when you open it up, you are going to have an amazing dish. Um... Oh, also I forgot. When you um, add the apples, you're going to add the remainder of your hard cider. So it's a it's a bottle. I think it's a 16 ounce bottle. Um, and I and I used half of it to deglaze, and then I added the, the other half when the apples went in there. Um, there's no stock. There's no water. It's just the cider and the the juices from the meat and the moisture that comes out of the onions. And the apples, and this definitely has sort of a German flair to it with the onions and the apples, and you could certainly add other seasonings to it as well. you know maybe a t- a pinch of cloves might be nice in here, but I think the sage really just works super well, and after all you're you're wanting to taste the pork, so you don't want to disguise it with too many spices. And this is great it 's really nice, and you 'll see that it thickens up um beautifully a um, little bit of cream it's it 's not much um you 'll see it in the recipe, but it just adds a little bit of velvet lusciousness and i gotta tell you this is one of the best ways to cook pork, and you can serve this on or near just about any vegetable i mean of course, it would be incredible with potatoes or um slow cooked collard greens would be something that I would love with this, even a corn pudding. Um, putting this uh, next to some corn pudding would be really incredible. But, Gary, I hope that gives you at least a different idea to cook with that wild boar. And uh, I want to wish you happy hunting out there. And encourage all of you out there to check out harvesteating.com and also my food storage course. You can go to foodstoragefeast.com if you're interested in that course and you use the coupon code T S P you'll save fifty bucks. And it's a good course to teach you how to cook with stored food. Also, those of you that are interested, and a lot of you have, so thank you. Um, you can check me out on Instagram, Instagram.com slash harvesteating, and that's where I post all about uh, my cooking adventures, just all kinds of stuff. Um, you'll see the mountains of Utah with their snow recently and uh it's just a fun way to um, to keep you guys and gals up to date and with that I hope everybody has a great weekend thanks for supporting TSP and also my work Jack have a great weekend dude, later
1: yeah real quick just adding to the whole concept of pig is pig I'll tell you a quick story, so years and years ago I was fishing, uh, fishing, hunting a place I still hunt once in a while called West Kerr Ranch and uh, they have kind of a policy on wild p- pigs, if you see one shoot it please and then usually you take your pig home. Well, one year I was there, this guy shot a massive, and it was a boar. It was a male. Yeah, I mean, this thing was 350 plus. I mean, we didn't weigh it, but it was, it was somewhere between 350 and 400 pounds. That's really big. And people say, Oh, it's an old, big, giant boar. It's going to be stinky. It's going to be smelly. It's going to be awful. Oh, oh, it's not where you might just push in a hole and let, you know, like that kind of shit. And you know what? A big boar like that stinks. I shot one same place two years ago. It was about 250-ish. Yeah, I took it home and ate it. It was delicious. Everybody that ate it said it was delicious. Uh, no one said otherwise. So they have this huge pig. And this guy's like him and hawing. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I, I shot it because you said to, but uh, it's so it stinks so bad. And it's just, like, and, and and the owner of the place, this chick barber, she's like, you know what? If If you're worried about it going to waste... We can make it go. We can make sure it goes to someone who needs it. And the guy's like, "Oh, like you can see like a relief come on him that he was he was you know forestalled the the burden of 300 pounds of pork, you know." And so he went on his way. And I said, "Hey, uh, what, what are you gonna what are you gonna do with the pig? Because you know what I'm thinking, right? I, I'm I'm fixing to go freaking you know hustle on this pig, man. I at least I'm I'm, I'm wanting the tenderloins out of it and maybe a leg or two, like." I don't want to take it from hunters from the hungry or anything, but like I'm kind of hungry and I'm a hunter, so you know, what, what are you going to do with the pig? And she goes, I'm going to give it to somebody that needs it. We're, we're almost out of pork right now, so we need pork. I just said that so he'd feel better about it. So they kept it. Now these are people that they run a, uh, a cattle ranch and hunting operation, 25,000 acres for a living, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. They, they're on this land. Again, 25,000 acres of land. And the only thing they saw in that pig was pork chops. Now, do they stink? Yeah, they stink. You stink sometimes, too. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the meat. I've had people say, you know, I could get a little bit of the, in the meat. A then you don't know how to prepare it, and you don't know how to cook it, and you don't know how to process it. You, you can get a little bit of uh, I guess, the, and I hate this word, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. What people would call a gamey flavor... it's not like it's going to kill you, and it's not like it's bad. I I think the problem that people have here is they're used to no flavor in their food. And the thing that they say, well, what is that flavor? It's flavor. That's what it is. It's flavor. It's like when you – people say that about, you know, like, ring-neck pheasant, man, and you shoot one of those. I mean, it's just a a sport. Like, they're not – it tastes like chicken. Come on. Please. I mean, this idea – like, this is what we lived on as a species for so long. So just don't be afraid of boars. And and it, really, I mean, pork, if it's a lean cut, cook it like you cook a lean cut. If it's a fatty cut, cook it like you cook a fatty cut. And nothing, nothing is ever tough if you put it through a grinder. I'll just say that too. So let's talk a little bit about this observation that I've made in the past few weeks. I've been watching it all year long. And now I'm seeing it kind of really start to crescendo and it it is all of these um alternative economic type people right um the most prominent one but to be fair to him he's he's been more than tacit not all in but more than tacit over the last 12 years it would be chris martinson of you know having a garden having solar all this stuff but he hasn't really been all in right and he he's been living like on a cul-de-sac in connecticut and I just saw a discussion with him today and another guy. I can't think of the other guy's name, but he's big on the all gold, 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 gold. And uh, both of them are talking about, you know, land and getting out of the cities and uh, uh, going far more broad with everything. And again, I- I'm not picking on Chris. He's probably the, of the group I'm talking of, he has been the closest to where we've been at the entire time. What I'm seeing is all those other people in that space come at least to his level and go past where it's been, right into TSP land, right into. I, I'm you know the one guy that was on that discussion like yeah I've got a small farm and he's in Mexico he like fled the country right and he's got organic food and blah 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 and, like I, I'm seeing just more. I bought a Tesla Powerwall and I've got solar panels and like this entire space. Is basically going, yeah, you know how we said to buy gold and silver for years? Because that's mostly what they do. Yeah, um, you probably want to own some cryptocurrency, and uh, you, you probably uh, need to be doing some homesteading and some preparing and all that stuff. And, like, again, I know somebody you got out there is going to be a fan of Chris and say, oh, you're crap. No, Chris has been kind of between our space and that space the whole time. What I'm saying is that middle is becoming the left edge of this school of thought and why that's important is that these people you know and and, and I'm talking about like the max kaisers of the world and, and what have you there's things you can criticize about them but they're good at what they do there's been some decisions they've said to make that i haven't been completely in board with but their explanation of the economic idiocy that is our economic system And the fact that it has to eventually fail has been spot on. But I want you to think about something here. I have talked about a reset long, long, long ago when that word was not a mainstream word, when no one was using that word. And what I said was they are going to reset the currency. I'm telling you, I said things about this in like 2009, 2010, 2011. They're going to what I would say is rebase the currency a rebasement is a reset. so i think i was way more fond of the word rebase than reset but it's the same thing. and that's what this global economic reset really all revolves around. you control the world with money. let me say it one more time in case anybody has not caught up to 2020 yet or 1980 yet right you should have understood this if you, when you were old enough To cry for something and be told you can't get it because you want it because money doesn't go on trees. From that point forward, you should have understood money controls the world. Right? Money talks, bullshit walks from the great ACDC yesterday. Money talks. And therefore, he who controls the money controls the conversation. Jack Spearco. Okay? If you want to reset the planet, reset the money. That's how you do it. That's what they're going to do. That's why you can't stop it. You get all the other megatrends. You get the changes in education. You get the infiltration and indoctrination of the people that remain in the system of education. You get the effect of that being done to them for 40 years. Most people being taught, this is the way. Socialism is the way. That, they didn't say it as bluntly 20 years ago, but they were still teaching, these are the things that would be good. And then here's socialism over here. It doesn't quite have that. And now they're just saying that is socialism, and that's good, right? 30, 40 years of this going, like you can't reverse that now. The 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 trend is toward leftism and socialism in the world. It's winning the information war. It absolutely is. You don't have to like it, but it is. So these people are going to march headlong into this, and they're going to rebase. The currency. They're gonna have their global dream that they've always had to be able to know where every dollar or euro or yen or name your currency of choice is at any time where it's been and where it's going next and the ability to change that if they decide to by digitizing the global currency system and the global banking system. They're going to do that. You are not going to stop that. You can get a whole bunch of Hell's Angels right into D.C., pull all the existing clowns out of the clown house, and drop them off the Washington Monument. And I would probably go, that was pretty entertaining. I'd probably burn through some popcorn on that one. And they would put new clowns in, and they would still do this. Because they're not the ones really doing it. It is coming. It's coming, and we are going to go through some serious shit. And the bigger problem, like any disaster we've ever been through, it's not the disaster, it's the reaction of the unprepared that you have to be prepared for. When there's a hurricane, it sucks, but it comes and it goes. The problem then is the masses of people who were like, gee, I I never think there'd be a hurricane in South Florida. And all those people freaking out. And then people losing their shit because Best Buy sold water in a case for the same price they sold water individually every day up till that day. And now Best Buy is responsible for all the misery with this hurricane. Like that mentality. Okay, now imagine that mentality with a storm that lasts a decade and hits everywhere at once. People are gonna lose their shit in this. You think they hoarded? You think they hoarded back in March and April? Wait, do you see them start hoarding when it when it when it dawns on these little these little freaking special snowflakes? Oh, wait! You mean I'm the one that has to give stuff up? I thought it was all the rich people. No, stupid. The rich people get to keep everything they have, including their private jets. They get to continue jet setting around the world. You are you you, you people in this country that are the left wing lunatics. To think of yourself as poor and impoverished? No. According to them, you're the wealthy. Anybody that lives in this country is wealthy in this plan. And it doesn't mean they're going to take everything you have, but they're going to take some of it. And they're going to tell you, you have to have less because we have to save the planet. But one day, maybe your children will go to Mars. And maybe they'll be able to print you a heart out of thin air. That kind of shit. They're going to sell magic to you. Vin Armani calls it the dim age. Because they're selling everything to you with magic and mythology. That's why. They're selling it to you with magic. Look at all these wonderful things that can happen. By the way, you're not allowed to have anything except porridge for your meals. To get harder and harder more and more expensive to get meat. Wealthy countries like the United States, you'll still be able to get it. It's just going to cost a lot more. And it's going to be shittier quality than ever before. Or... You can start putting chickens in your backyard. You can learn to raise rabbits. You can learn to raise quail. And this is what I would say: form a network. I'm not going to do all that shit. I like to eat rabbit. I'm not going to do rabbits and quail and chickens and turkeys. And I mean, I'm not. So i I'd, I'd be fine if I could get a neighbor that would be like, you know what, we're going to do this thing, right? We're going to do rabbits. Okay, fine. I'll up my duck clock. I know ducks. Like the back of my hand. I am the duck freaking master. So why don't we trade you... Eight dozen duck eggs a month... For four rabbits a month. Well I don't know if I can afford... Them. Let me show you. And then... Why don't I help you then? I didn't say... I didn't know how to do rabbits. Let's set you up with a plot... That's a mix of grass and clover... And a lawnmower. So you can feed your rabbits... 80% from your backyard. Now you can afford... You See? All. The, and by the way... That rabbit manure... I need some of that. And let's we'll set up another neighbor with quail. Right? Eggs, meat. And again, how can we feed the quail more? I happen to know how to do that. I don't want to do all of it, but I know how. Like, this is the mentality that's going to create these neutral zone pockets throughout the whole country. Because that's, that's our freaking arrow in the quiver that you can't take away from us. We have so much space. We have so much existing freedom. We have so much adaptability when we really come down to it as a species. That when you give us something like the United States of America, with the remaining vestiges of a republic where if this place sucks bad enough, I'll just move. You do that, and you can't help. You can't help but end up. Basically, all these community ideas that we floated and wanted to do and wanted to execute for all these years, the time's now. The time to just do it. Don't ask for permission. Don't try to figure it out as far as, well, let's lay this out. Like, what do you have? What are your tools? Who can you find who wants to do this to? What are their tools? And how do those mesh together? That's where we're at now. And here's the fundamental reality. When we talk about community, everybody wants to talk about it all flowery. Traditionally, communities have been strongest when oppression has been the greatest. Like, even in Soviet Russia, sure, everybody was scared of Stalin. Maybe there wasn't that much really tight community right in, like, the cities. Because the neighbor might hear you talking to the other neighbor and rat you out so that they get an extra biscuit this week, and you get dragged off to Siberia or shot in the head. But, and I'm telling you, I know people. I know people that lived in these places during these times. And all you had to do was move out just a little bit into the Russian countryside. And the community there was so amazingly resilient that it's actually an embarrassment how much better they were at it than we are. So we're going to head into this place of shortage and oppression that is going to create the need for community. But like I said earlier this week when I talked about adapting to it, once a community forms, it's harder to become part of it. And the more the community is needed and the more community has already developed, the less need there is to bring someone else into it, especially someone you don't know and trust. This is not a place where you need to wait to the last minute and be on the outside looking in. These skill sets we talk about from homesteading, basic engineering, how to build stuff, how to take care of animals, how to produce food, how to use alternative currencies, because I mean that's the other big thing. Like a lot of these people, I listen to them shit all over Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies for years, and also like, well, you know, maybe you should have some of that cryptocurrency stuff too. Because they're starting to realize, wait a minute, if they're shifting to a digital currency, if they're going to do it, then we need. You don't counter digital currency with a lump of metal. How do you do? How do you do business? with somebody in Washington from Florida with a lump of metal. Really? But our matey, I didn't do business with them, and you can't prove that I did. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is time to adapt. Think of it like you are going to have to take a little ass raft off a desert island through a raging sea. And that's, you have no choice. You're on an island. You've, you've done the castaway thing. Some natives pulled up in a boat and said, This is our island. Next week we're coming back. And if you're still here, we're going to skin you alive and leave you baked in the sun with no skin on. So we suggest you get off this island, and you, and you say, I, I, somehow you can speak to these people, and you say, I don't have any way to get off the island, and they say, not our problem, and they leave. You're fixing to make a boat. You're fixing to make a boat. I'll fight them. No, you won't. You're one person, right? There's hundreds or thousands of them. And they mean they're going to skin you. So as much as that ocean's going to suck, you're going to build the best boat you can... You're going to leave when the times are right, and you're going to do the best you can to ride the currents to survive. And if you do, you might actually find a new place that's even better in this metaphor. That's this. To be blunt with you, that's what this is. That's what this is. This can be, for you, the greatest opportunity of your lifetime. It doesn't mean you get out of it unscathed. It doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable. It doesn't mean there's things that you'd prefer not to happen that i prefer not to happen. But if you're opportunistic and agile and smart, this can be the greatest opportunity for gain that you'll ever see. Maybe that's ever been seen. Now, that doesn't mean it's all sunshine and roses. And I would say this about our buddy Chris Martinson. He's a little more comfortable with these people than I am. Like he's not totally comfortable, but he's like, yeah, I understand. And I'm the one that said, you know, not all of it will be bad, but all these people are bad. All these people are horrible. The people behind this. There are hor- horrible, maniacal people with no desire in their heart is greater to them than power and control. That is their morality. That is their virtue. Power and control. And it's why they take tin pot tyrants like a Whitmer or an Inslee or a Biden and they set them up as middle mafia bosses because their virtue is power and control as well. But they're low rent. They're low rent. You can say you're president of the United States. Look how it worked out for Orange Man. How many things did he want to do he didn't get done? How many things did he find out the hard way? Yeah, you're not really CEO of a company when you're president of the United States. It's not how it works. Well, at least I can withdraw these troops. Yeah, go ahead, try it. See what happens. Well, we'll take some of them back, and y'all give him credit. He took some back, but like, think about it. Most powerful man in the world says he wants the troops out of Afghanistan and Iraq. Still there. Four years later, theoretically, has the power to just say tomorrow take them out. Still there. Still there. Not leaving. We will not be out of either theater at the end of this. And I'm, I'm now looking at, you know, can the can the orange man pull the white rabbit out of the hat? I don't think so. I think Joe Biden's your next president. I said you're next president if you voted. you know Not my president. If you partake, partake in this shit, either side is your president. Me, I don't recognize the authority of the state. Not my president. Because no president's my president. That's the mindset it's going to take to get through this. I don't, I don't have to deny that person's existence or influence on my life. I just don't acknowledge their sovereignty over it. And it's going to be that mindset of, I will make my life better no matter what you try to do to me. That's what's going to change things. For you. You're not going to change the world. Forget about it. It's not happening. It's above your pay grade. I do think we all need to fight back on the the lockdowns. I think we're at a point right now where America's teetering, and eventually, I don't care if 25% of the country remains COVID-Karens forever, if 10% of the people say, you know what, I'm going back to work, I'm opening my business, go screw it. there's nothing you can do about it, there's nothing they can do about it. And as soon as 10% do it, 70% will come out. There'll be 80% of the people just ignoring them. And that includes cops and enforcers and shit. Just, like, I think that can be done. But I don't know how, how hard they have to step on your masked face before you'll do it and stop living in fear. But I, I believe that will happen. And I think that this is the big the biggest thing that everybody's mixing up right now. They're doing it with COVID, man. Nah, they'd be doing it with something if it wasn't COVID. Great reset has been going on for six years. It's just excellent COVID's killing the dying. Right? It's just it's just an excuse. It's just a methodology. It's just a way to move a little faster. But the momentum's already been there. Most of the stuff that's going to happen in the next 10 years, I told you five years ago, this shit's going to happen between 2020 and 2030, didn't I? This is not because COVID. This is not letting a good crisis go to waste. And you know what? In your adult life, have you seen us go more than a year without a crisis? And if there shall not be a crisis, we shall manufacture one. COVID was just a really convenient crisis because it hit the primal fear that we have. I'm going to finish with this, just so you understand what they're doing to you, though. Humanity has lived through true plagues, disfiguring plagues, like smallpox, that not only took lives, but took faces and body parts and mangled them. Humanity has lived through true plagues, like the Black Plague, that may have killed as much as 60-70% to 70% of the entire population of the world we have lived through true pandemics that take from us the young the old and the middle aged alike we have lived through this at the hands of pathogens and therefore imprinted in our ancestral memory is a primal fear it is the same fear that you feel When you're walking in the woods and you don't hear anything, you don't see anything, you don't smell anything, but something tells you that big freaking mountain lion is somewhere out there. And it's not irrational, it's not illogical, it really is. You don't know how you know, you just know the predator is there. Or when you're the predator and you're in a tree stand waiting for a deer, you've been there for hours enjoying the scenery. No sound, no smell, no nothing. He's there. I know he's there. Those are ancestral memories of being both predator and prey. We have this ancestral memory of, it's coming for us. They know this. They used it against you. They convinced you to stay away from your parents while they died. To let your parents die without their hand being held. That's what they for their own good. They're dying, stupid. People have gotten rid of their dogs, because dogs carry coronavirus. Not hugged their children. Covered their faces. Wiped off the mail with alcohol swabs. All because that ancestral memory is real. So it's a perfect means of accelerating control. But it will pass. And this won't slow down when it's gone. This, well, They're going to use the vaccine. They can take the vaccine and shove it up their ass, okay? When that catastrophe is over, there will be another one and another one and another one. And this will never stop because it never has. If you've had your eyes open, you've watched this occur, it's never really been any different. It just becomes more obvious. The now becomes more now. The now becomes more now. And it's your choice. You can become more of who and what you are so that you can adapt and thrive in this. Or you can ignore it and end up run over by it. Or you can fight it and end up crushed by it. You do have three choices. Two of them are bad. So I suggest learning to adapt to it. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us by doing your online shopping where? com. That's right. You go to com. do your online shopping from there, and I bet a lot of it's coming up with the holiday season, right? Oh, yeah. So just, if you're going to buy something, go there first. And you'll help support us. Today, I don't really have an item of the day because it's not all written up in review because I don't own it yet. But I ordered it today. I've been waiting on it. And I don't really need to do much of a review on a jigsaw. I mean, I know what a jigsaw does. I know how it works. This is the uh, the 20-volt XR brushless jigsaw from DeWalt. Now, what happened was I switched over to 20-volt DeWalt a few years ago. Had some legacy 18-volt Equipment that's still pretty good. Got these really slick adapters. Started using that, and then started investing in top-of-the-line brushless Dewalt tools. To me, for me, that's the best investment there is out there. And um, the one thing I never had a cordless one of, just never got around to it, was a jigsaw. I'm talking about a handheld jigsaw here, not a table jigsaw. Um, and I was gonna like pick up like a Porter Cable or something like that because I have a Porter Cable nailer, so I have. Nails for, I mean, uh, batteries that would interact. Um, And I'm like, nah, I really wanted DeWalt. So I I, I looked up, there's some pretty inexpensive DeWalt jigsaws, uh, tool only, you know, cordless. Um, But, like, the XR brushless line, $219 for a jigsaw. Like, what the hell, man? Uh, I'm a fan. I bleed black and, you know, black and yellow, but not that much. And I saw, I've been put I put it on a price watch, and it's down 164 bucks today. So I went ahead, and I'm like, that saves me $54. I'll do that. So I picked one up today, 25% off. The DeWalt 20-volt max XR jigsaw. Um, if you are in the DeWalt line, and you don't have a jigsaw yet, and you want a really good one, this would be the one to get. Um, building stuff, really, really important. And I, I just say, like, well, what have you done up till now, Jack? Uh, <laughs> I have a really cheap, like, $40 skill jigsaw that you plug into the wall. And so I either drug my stock into my shop or plugged a cord in my shop and ran it out to wherever I was working whenever I needed a jigsaw. The bad thing is that there's times when I'm like, I can get by doing this with a skill saw or a reciprocating saw or whatever. No, no right tool for the right job. And every time I was ever having a deal with, like lugging a piece of three quarter plywood around, like, but. Hey, I'm not spending 200 bucks on a jigsaw, but I wanted this one. It's available, so uh, now you know. And remember, DeWalt sales, they don't come often, and they don't last long. Uh, They're very brand conscious and and, uh, MSRP uh, price conscious. So just a good one to know about today. And it is still on sale as I record this. It hasn't gone away yet. But sometimes my sales that I find, by the time I do the show and you get it, they're gone already, especially with DeWalt. So you want to be on the Telegram channel, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. Look up any episode. It'll show you all the new ways you can stay in touch with us on social media, but the Telegram channel is one of the best. It's like test messaging, except the Apple people and uh, the government people aren't looking at it all the time. And you can have groups and all kinds of discussions and chats and use it with your own family and use it for voice calling, and it's really cool. With two people, you can do end-to-end encrypted messaging if you set it to that. But you can get updates from me on the Telegram channel, and you don't have to deal with, like, 500 other TSP people talking about their homesteading. It's just me saying, hey, the show's live. It's really cool, and it's already paid off for a lot of people. So that's the one you really want to think about joining. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. Um, I was trying to think of like a song that would really fit where we're at in the world today. And believe it or not, it was written in 2000, and boy, it is perfect for today. And everything between 2000 and now. It's a song that became more now over time. And I think it perfectly describes the people that think they're going to fight back with voting or something against this great reset, you know? I don't know, Laura Trump's going to save us by becoming a senator or some shit like I saw today. Yeah. This is just, or the next war we should fight because you've got to fight them over there so you don't have to fight them over here. Think about all that kind of shit while I read this to you. This is a stanza of the song. When your grasp has exceeded your reach, and you put all your faith in a figure of speech, you've heard all the answers, but the questions remain. Grab On To That Fistful of Rain. And that is the name of the song, Fistful of Rain. Think about grabbing on a fistful of rain. This is by Warren Zeven. And uh, it's from his, I think it was his last album, Keep Me In Your Heart. And it kind of is a, like a lot of his deep songs. It's kind of lighthearted, folksy sounding. But this song is so deep. And it's so much what people are doing right now. In this world where everything is in flux, everything is changing, At a level of megatrend, instead of at adapting and using a surfboard, people are trying to fight the waves with an anchor tied to their feet. That's grabbing onto a fistful of rain. You got a weekend of you ahead of you. Remember those little blue marbles we talked about in the beginning? That life force between now and when you go back to work for most of you, you got two of those to spend. What are you going to do with them? One thing you can do with them, I announced this yesterday, but uh, Miyagi Mornings, which now you can share little segments uh, with friends that that maybe are not ready for a full episode of TSP, these little videos I do in the morning. Somebody suggested putting them all together tomorrow morning. A first episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap will come out in the podcast feed, but it won't be numbered like 2,700 and whatever. It will be numbered Episode 1, Miyagi Morning Recap, and that will be a new special series. Coming out in the TSP feed, so that's something to look forward to over the weekend. A little Miyagi inspiration, I think you'll really dig the intro that I put together for that. With that, it's been Jack Spierko, uh, wishing you a great weekend, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't.